Good day all, Joe Christian here with RootWorks presents Old Reads. Today we are pleased to bring you, for your listening pleasure, courtesy of E.W. Bollinger, may he rest in peace, the Companion Bible, Appendix 19, The Serpent of Genesis 3. There are many myths that have been carried for centuries and beyond about certain biblical metaphors and figures of speech. I hope with enough time in this podcast and other forums, God willing, we can dispel most, if not all of them. Please allow this to serve as the beginning of that endeavor. I'm going to take this one slow and steady as it's pretty dense and there's a lot to absorb. Here it is, the serpent of Genesis 3 commentary by E.W. Bollinger. Enjoy. In Genesis 3, we have neither allegory, myth, legend, nor fable, but literal historical facts set forth as emphasized by the use of certain figures of speech. All the confusion of thought and conflicting exegesis have arisen from taking literally what is expressed by figures and from taking figuratively that which is literal. A figure of speech is never used except for the purpose of calling attention to, emphasizing and intensifying the reality of the literal sense and truth of the historical fact so that while the words employed may not be so strictly true to the letter, they are all the more true to the truth conveyed by them and to the historical events connected with them. But for the figurative language of verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, no one would have thought of referring the third chapter of Genesis to a snake. No more than he does when reading the third chapter from the end of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 2. Indeed, the explanation added there that the old serpent is the devil and Satan would immediately lead one to connect the word old with the earlier and former mention of the serpent in Genesis 3. And the fact that it was Satan himself who tempted the second man, the last Adam, would force the conclusion that no other than the personal Satan could have been the tempter of that first man, Adam. The Hebrew word rendered serpent in Genesis 3.1 is nakash, from the root nakash, to shine, and means a shining one. Hence, in Chaldee, it means brass or copper because of its shining. Hence also the word nahushtan, a piece of brass in 2 Kings 18.4. In the same way, the word seraph in Isaiah 6 verses 2 and 6 means a burning one. And because the serpents mentioned in Numbers 21 were burning in the poison of their bite, they were called seraphim or seraphs. But when the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent in Numbers 21, 8, he said, make thee a seraph. And in obeying this command, we read in verse 9 of the same chapter, Moses made a nakash of brass. Nakash is thus used as being interchangeable with seraph, the physicality of the serpent being interchangeable 
with the burning one or shining one in the spiritual realm. Now, if seraph is used of a serpent because its bite was burning and is also used of a celestial or spirit being a burning one, why should not nakash be used of a serpent because it, its appearance was shining and be also used of a celestial or spirit being a shining one? Indeed, a reference to the structure of Genesis 3 on page 7 will show that the cherubim, which are similar celestial or spirit beings of the last verse, Genesis 3, verse 24, require a similar spirit being to correspond with them in the first verse. For structure of the whole chapter is a great introversion. The nakash, or serpent, who beguiled Eve reference 2 Corinthians 11.3, is spoken of as an angel of light in verse 14. Have we not in this a clear intimation that it was not a snake, but a glorious shining being, apparently an angel to whom Eve paid such great deference, acknowledging him as one who seemed to possess superior knowledge and who was evidently a being of a superior, not of an inferior, order Moreover, in the description of Satan as the king of Tyre, it is distinctly implied that the latter being was of a supernatural order when he is called a cherub in Ezekiel 28, 14, and 16. Read from verses 11 through 19. His presence in Eden, the garden of Elohim, or God and his angels, God and his host, verse 13 is also clearly stated as well as his being perfect in beauty. Verse 12, his being perfect in his ways from the day he was created till iniquity was found in him. Verse 15, and as being lifted up because of his beauty. Verse 17, these all compel the belief that Satan was the shining one, the Nakash in Genesis 3, and especially because the following words could be addressed to him. Quote, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Verse 17. Even supposing that these things were spoken to and of an exalted human being in later days, Ezekiel 28, still the king of Tyre, is not compared to a being who is non-existent, and facts and circumstances which never happened are not introduced into the comparison. There is more about the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 than was literally true of the prince of Tyre, verses 1 through 10. The words can be understood only of the mightiest and most exalted supernatural being that God ever created, and this for the purpose of showing how great would be his fall. The history must be true to make the prophecy of any weight. Again, the word rendered subtle in Genesis 3, 1, means wise in a good sense as well as in a bad sense in ezekiel 28 12 we have the good sense thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and the bad sense in verse 17 thou hast corrupted thy wisdom referring of course to his fall so the word rendered subtle is rendered prudent in proverbs 1 4 8, 12, 14, and in a bad sense in Job 15, 1 Samuel 23, 22, Psalms 83, 3. 
The word beast, also in Genesis 3.1, is che. It denotes a living being, and it is as wrong to translate zoa, beasts, in Revelation 4, as it is to translate che, beast, in Genesis 3. Both mean living creature, not beast. There's a great specificity there. Or perhaps a more generalized term that is not so specific as beast. Satan is thus spoken of as being more wise than any other living creature which God had made. Not beast, living creature. Even if the word beast be retained, it does not say that either a serpent or Satan was a beast, but only that he was more wise than any other living being. We cannot conceive Eve as holding converse with a snake, but we can understand her being fascinated by one, apparently an angel of light, a glorious angel possessing superior and supernatural knowledge. When Satan is spoken of as a serpent, it is the figure called hypocatastasis, or implication. It no more means a snake than it does when Dan is so-called a serpent in Genesis 49.17, or an animal when Nero is called a lion in 2 Timothy 4.17, or when Herod is called a fox in Luke 13.32, or when Judah is called a lion's whelp. It's the same figure when doctrine is called leaven. It shows that something much more real and truer to truth is intended. If a figure of speech is thus employed, it is for the purpose of expressing the truth more impressively and is intended to be a figure of something much more real than the letter of the word. Other figures of speech are used in verses 14 and 15, but only for the same purpose of emphasizing the truth and the reality of what is said. When it is said in verse 15, thou shalt bruise his heel, it cannot mean his literal heel of flesh and blood, but suffering more temporary to character, a non-fatal wound, something that would not kill, but only agitate for a while. When it is said in verse 15, he shall crush the head, it means something more than a skull of bone and brain and hair. It means that all Satan's plans and plots, policy and purpose will one day be finally crushed and ended, never more to mar or to hinder the purposes of God. This will be effected when Satan shall be bruised under our feet, Romans 16.20. This again will not be our literal feet, but something much more real. The bruising of Christ's heel is the most eloquent and impressive way of foretelling the most solemn events, and to point out that the effort made by Satan to evade his doom, then threatened, would become the very means of ensuring its accomplishment. For it was through the death of Christ that he who had the power of death would be destroyed, and all Satan's power and policy brought to an end, and all his works destroyed. Hebrews 2.14, 1 John 3.8, Revelation 20.1-3, and verse 10. What literal words could portray these literal facts so wonderfully as these expressive figures of speech? It is the same with the other figures used in verse 14. On thy belly shalt thou go. This figure means infinitely more than the literal belly of the flesh and blood, just as the words heel and head do in verse 15. It paints for the eyes of our mind the picture of Satan's ultimate humiliation. For prostration, 
was ever the most eloquent sign of subjection. When it is said, our belly cleaveth unto the ground, Psalms 44, 25, it denotes such a prolonged prostration and such a depth of submission as could never be conveyed or expressed in literal words. So with the other prophecy, dust shalt thou eat. This is not true to the letter or to fact, but it is all the more true to truth. It tells of constant, continuous disappointment, failure, and mortification, as when deceitful ways are spoken of as feeding on deceitful food, which is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Proverbs 20.17 This does not mean literal gravel, but something far more disagreeable. It means disappointment so great that it would gladly be exchanged for the literal gravel. So when Christians are rebuked for, quote, biting and devouring one another, Colossians 3, 14 and 15, something more heartbreaking is meant than the literal words used in the figure. When his enemies shall lick the dust, Psalm 72, 9, they will not do it on their knees with their literal tongues, but they will be so prostrated, so utterly defeated that no words could literally depict their overthrow and subjugation. If a serpent was afterward called a nakash, it was because it was more shining than any other creature. And if it became known as wise, it was not because of its own innate positive knowledge, but of its wisdom in hiding away from all observation. And because of its association with one of the names of Satan, that old servant, serpent who beguiled Eve. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 14. It is wonderful how a snake could ever be supposed to speak without the organs of speech, or that Satan should be supposed able to accomplish so great a miracle. It only shows the power of tradition, which has, from the infancy of each one of us, put forth our put before our eyes and written on our minds the picture of a snake and an apple. The former based on a wrong interpretation, and the latter being of pure invention, about which there is not one word said in holy writ. Never was Satan's wisdom so craftily used as when he secured universal acceptance of this traditional belief. For it has succeeded in fixing the attention of mankind on the letter and the means, thus blinding the eyes to the solemn fact that the fall of man had to do solely with the word of God and is centered in the sin, believing Satan's lie instead of God's truth. The temptation of the first man, Adam, began with the question, hath God said? The temptation of the second man, the Lord from heaven, began with a similar question, if thou be the son of God. When the voice of the father had scarcely died away, which said, this is my beloved son all turned on the truth of what God had said. The word of God being questioned led Eve, in her reply, one, to omit the word freely, then to add the words, neither shalt thou touch it, and finally to alter a certainty into a contingency by changing thou shalt surely die into lest ye die. It is not without significance that the first ministerial words of the second man were, it is written, three times repeated, and that his last ministerial words contained a similar threefold reference to the written word of God, John 17, 8, 14, and 17. 
The former temptation succeeded because the word of God was three times misrepresented. The latter temptation was successfully defeated because the same word was faithfully repeated. The history of Genesis 3 is intended to teach us the fact that Satan's sphere of activities is in the religious sphere and not the spheres of crime or immorality. That his battlefield is not the sins arising from the human depravity, but the unbelief of the human heart. We are not to look for Satan's activities today in the newspaper press or the police courts, but in the pulpit and in professor's chairs. Wherever the word of God is called in question, there we see the trail of that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. This is why anything against the true interests of the word of God, as being such, finds a ready admission into the newspapers of the world and is treated as general literature. This is why anything in favor of its inspiration and divine origin and its spiritual truth is rigidly excluded as being controversial. This is why Satan is quite content that the letter of Scripture should be accepted in Genesis 3 as he himself accepted the letter of Psalm 91.11. He himself could say, it is written, so long as the letter of what is written could be put instead of the truth that is conveyed by it, and so long as it is misquoted or misapplied. This is his object in perpetuating the traditions of the snake and the apple because it ministers to the acceptance of his lie, the hiding of God's truth, the support of tradition, the jeers of the infidel, the opposition of the critics, and the stumbling of the weak in faith. You've been listening to Rootworks Old Reads, Appendix 19 of the Companion Bible, The Serpent of Genesis 3.